High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Prepare for a pre-episode discussion on pre-diseases. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. What is pre-disease? That's a medical condition caught in its early stages before it gets bad. It is well established that we can prevent bad disease by screening and catching the condition early in its pre-disease stage and applying treatment. Take, for example, cervical cancer. If we screen for cervical cancer with pap smears, we can detect precancerous lesions and treat them before we get full-blown cancer. The same goes for glaucoma. Screening for glaucoma by measuring eye pressure, we can detect pre-glaucoma and treat high eye pressure to prevent full glaucoma and blindness. The same goes for screening for high blood pressure, for hypertension, and checking blood sugar and hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. What about addiction? Is there such a thing as pre-addiction? Can we screen for addiction and detecting pre-addiction in order to make an intervention and prevent full-blown disease and overdose deaths? That is a concept published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association for Psychiatry, in August 2022 by prominent national addiction leaders, Dr. Thomas McClellan, Dr. George Koop, Director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and Dr. Nora Wolkoff, the Director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. These three leaders came together and said, it's time to start talking about pre-addiction. So we're going to talk about it. And you can hear Dr. Wolkov's discussion with me on episode number 107. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, High Truths. My name is Ray Hanstead, and I'm the Senior Policy Advisor for the Center for Community Research, where we're working to identify and advance prevention-based policy strategies. Thank you, Dr. Lev, for inviting me to submit a question. Mine is, what is pre-addiction and is it like pre-diabetes? Thank you for clarifying. Thank you, Ray, for your excellent question. It's definitely a pleasure working with you in the Center of Community Research and helping San Diego County out with the issue of drugs and drug policy. And uh, thank you for framing this excellent question. And we need to go straight to the source to get an answer. We need to go straight to the first author of the publication on pre-addiction with Dr. Tom McClellan. 
Dr. McClellan has been a career researcher in addiction treatment and policy for over 40 years, working primarily at the University of Pennsylvania and as founder and CEO of the Treatment Research Institute. He has worked at the White House and formulated President Obama's drug control strategy and made sure addiction was included in the Affordable Care Act. He has published hundreds of articles and won many distinguished awards. To learn more about Dr. Tom McClellan, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Tom McClellan, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much, Renee. Well, I'm very excited to have you here, and you bring a lot of perspective. You have 40 years in the addiction field, which brings history. And can you share with us how you came upon the field of addiction medicine? There Was there even such a thing 40 years ago and how things have changed over the years? Well, first of all, it's, it's, um, I'm, uh, it's closer to 50 years, actually. Um, and I came upon the addiction field very much the way many people do. I, I stumbled upon it. I had gotten out of graduate school. I'd had some money. I bought a farm. I drew a circle around that farm of 20 miles. And I looked for a potential employer. And uh, the one that came to mind was the uh, Veterans Administration Medical Center in Coatesville, PA, where they were just starting what was called a, I believe it was called a substance abuse treatment unit. Nobody knew what it was. It was uh, designed to do something for the, um, the, 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 the basically an epidemic of returning veterans uh, who were addicted. And uh, it was politically impossible to incarcerate them. So they thought, let's try treatment. But it was just starting. And I um, knew less than the people who were there. and But I, I loved it. I loved it from the very beginning. Very cool. And uh, of course, there's no shortage of issues of, of drugs and addiction over the years. But what ha what have you seen kind of change in in, in attitudes and in, in drugs? Uh, it seems like they're just stronger over the years. Yeah. Um, I, I just heard today that uh, the uh, opioid addiction was the, um, the epidemic more opioid addiction than ever before. I'm not sure that's true. I My research tells me the worst opioid epidemic was right after the Civil War, when there were so many patent opioid medications and so many people were addicted. Nonetheless, you're quite right. Um, there, There's no shortage of um, substances to be addicted to. Um, These frightening things are, uh, I, I know that, you know, not that long ago, there was efforts to get marijuana legalized. Now, on in the cannabis field, it's not marijuana anymore. It's synthetic cannabinoids that are produced um, uh, in um uh, you know, laboratories. Um, in the opioid field, it's fentanyl, um, synthetic opioid. On the on the public side, I am hopeful that we are finally beginning to see this as a public health and clinical health issue rather than a legal problem. Um, 
that's a new thing. Uh, and it, it's it's an, and, and the problem is, as far as I'm concerned, the problem is that the addiction treatment system in this country was constructed when we still thought of addiction as essentially a character disorder or a personality disorder. And the idea was you would put the addicted individual someplace where they would, um, you know, uh, have an epiphany. Uh, they would, you know, go back and, and, and reconstruct their personalities and learn honesty and responsibility and all that. Now, I'm not arguing against responsibility and honesty, but that we now know is not the essence of addiction. The essence of addiction is loss of control, which is, seems to be mediated uh, with a genetic predisposition and is now mediated uh, by uh, use-related changes to inhibitory reward, uh, stress, um, motivational circuitry in the brain. The problem is the treatment system that was constructed was specifically created outside the healthcare system and the medical system. So to this day, there's less than 30% of medical schools or nursing schools even have a single course in addiction. And so that transition from um, something that was a, a problem of bad parenting, poor character, poor morality into a chronic illness perspective has been very, very difficult to uh, to come to bring about. But it's necessary. And I, I think what what happened, the silver lining in all of this, I see, is when the medical community became the drug dealers by prescribing opioids, and I'm one of them, um, we came to be part of the solution as well. So well, boy, I hope that's true. And uh, you're right. That is one of the, the um, silver linings. Um, I know that at the University of Pennsylvania in the medical school, for until very recently, it was taught that drugs are not the problem. It's the person that is that gets the drug that's the problem. So it was not. It was thought that if you gave um, pain medication, you could give it at any for any period of time, uh, as long as the person was not didn't have an addictive personality or proclivity, and that is just flat wrong. So that was taught to doctors for most of my career. Yeah. Now they know better. Now they know that um, uh, protracted use of an opioid, even for pain, uh, can produce problems. Yeah. That started at the beginning of my career. That's exactly what I was taught, but it never did right. make sense. But I followed the rules because that's what a young doctor does. And now we're making up for that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but but still, um, even last year, I think it was over 100 million people got a prescription, a legitimate prescription for an opioid for, for pain relief. I'm not saying that that's inappropriate. I'm just saying that you're always going to be, there's going to be that tension about the appropriate but restricted use of an opioid for pain or analgesia. Um, 
and the, the side effects associated with protracted opioid use. And not just opioids, right? Benzodiazepines right. and and stimulants and all those drugs. So that's what really teach and promote safe prescribing. My colleague, George Woody, was the first person, to my knowledge, to write, to submit a paper discussing the potential um, um, uh, addictive properties of benzodiazepines, at that time, Valium. The, 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 the reviews and the, uh, the public, the, the professional outcry was overwhelming. They simply wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Three decades later, it's you're you're exactly right. Yeah. All these drugs have very legitimate, very important medical uses. So you're not hearing me say we don't need opioids, we don't need benzodiazepines, we don't need um, uh, stimulants. But I think doctors have begun to be aware that all these drugs have side effects. Right, especially when used in combination with each other. Oh yes. So, Tom, I reached out when I read um, a paper you authored in JAMA about pre-addiction, and I was like, "Ooh, that's interesting. What What is that? And and that's the question that we have uh, for you today. What is pre-addiction, and is it like checking for pre-diabetes? Well, um, it is a concept. Um it is not a finished product. It is not a, a set of findings. It is a concept. And it derives exactly from prediabetes. That's where I got the idea. And before I go further, I, I want to be clear. I am not arguing that um, we need pre-addiction because addiction is so like diabetes. Huge differences between addiction and diabetes between addiction and cancer. But for both those illnesses and many other, particularly chronic illnesses, the problems that chronic illnesses like addiction face are these. One, often people do not enter care at all. The penetration rate is low. Two, if they enter care, it is uh, very late in the stage of the illness and consequently, you have comorbidities, uh, physical medicine uh, problems, but also um, other other problems. Often, for the people who are in late stage on their illness, prognosis is poor, adherence is poor, outcomes are poor. Now, all of those things are true today for addiction. People don't want to go into treatment; they resist it when they're in it, and the outcomes are not as good as they ought to be. But in the diabetes field, faced with the same problems, they came up with a concept and later a health strategy. And, and it was interesting to me that the creators of the term pre-diabetes were not administrators, not public health officials, not clinicians, not researchers. It was the American Diabetes Association. This was the advocacy group for those affected, the individuals, but also their families, by diabetes. They said, look, if we have all these problems, but we are able to predict 
who is likely to go on and become a full blown uh, have a full blown case of type two diabetes. Why are we waiting for them to do, to do that? Why don't we intervene earlier? Why don't we create the concept called pre-diabetes? And it was a concept that was, uh, the word was created um, because it had a broad um, inherent understanding, not just among clinicians, but the public at large. Everybody knew what diabetes was. But more importantly, it had motivational significance. If I told you, you were about to get a thing that you didn't want to get, you might want to take some action and clinicians might want to take some action. But, and so that's where it derived. Now, interesting things to me, people say, oh, this is never going to work in the addiction field. First of all, we understand diabetes and its characterization very well. We know the metabolic pathways. We know the uh, all, all, all the effects of it. Two, we have proven um, medications and interventions that were um, designed to, 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 uh, to treat pre-diabetes. Three, um, Pre-diabetes, we have the moral and clinical authority to do something about pre-diabetes because that condition itself is um, has public health and, and clinical health significance, um, and 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 we have laboratory tests that clearly define. Now, all of that is true, and none of that is true in the addiction field, but. That's not really the point. The point is that none of those, those of all those very good things that happened in the diabetes field happened after the creation and popularization of the concept. Indeed, it was the American Diabetes Association that fostered um, participation by research, uh, by um, um, insurers who very rapidly found it in their interest to authorize and reimburse even, um, uh, you know, good ideas and, and, and early interventions. You, know, you could avoid the, the, the costs of true diabetes. It, it would be terrific. There's still not consensus about what is the definition, the laboratory definition of prediabetes. It's still not 100 percent uh, there's still not a hundred percent ability to predict, uh, even for those who who uh, who show early signs whether they're going to go on. But none of that has mattered. What's mattered is that it has started a strategy of moving interventions earlier on when your the the likelihood of having something effective is increased, and the nature of the intervention is changed as well. The interventions are by design, more, uh, more easily able to fit into a patient's daily repertoire, more attractive, easier to do. Um, and it, it's that general concept that we are suggesting, doctors uh, Nora Volkoff and, and uh, George Kube and I are suggesting that those ideas um, are certainly true today for, for addiction. And some of the strategies that the diabetes and cancer and more recently hypertension fields have done 
why don't we try some adaptations of those in in the addiction field? Sorry for the long answer there, but no, there that's go. that's great. So I I could just picture this room. I mean, you're talking about three giants, you know, like you mentioned, Dr. George Coop, Dr. Nora uh, Wolkoff, and you, are you like sitting coffee and saying, hey, what can we do to do things earlier? And you came up with this uh, concept? Just about. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, I prefer to think of these, the my colleagues as, as promising young investigators. Yeah. So that that's interesting. And then again, Dr. Wolkoff has that on her blog to really start thinking about pre-addiction. Yeah. It, it is. So, you know, uh, I, uh, of course, agree with the concept of intervening early before a, a disease, you know, blows up. Um, but as you mentioned, for addiction, it's a little different. Like, so the, what is the definition of pre-addiction? And from what I read in your article and, and for Dr. Um, Wolkoff, it's mild or moderate substance use disorder. So it'd be really right. rebranding the DSM-5 criteria. The DSM-5 yeah. criteria has 11 criteria. And if you have two to three criteria, you have mild disease. If you have four to five, you have moderate disease. If you have six or more, you have severe disease, which equals addiction. But um, so you want between two and if you have two or five of these things, you consider to have pre-addiction and, and that's the definition, right? That, that is our suggested starting point. And the reason is, uh, first of all, what we don't have. We do not have a laboratory test at this moment that is definitive. It's got high specificity, high sensitivity, and great predictivity, uh, prediction ability. Um, we don't have that. But it is possible to predict who's likely to transition from use to misuse to addiction. and. Um, we think the the two to five criteria, exactly what you said, is not a bad starting point to begin to ask the question. Those criteria are well known. They're easy to apply in lots of settings, clinical and non-clinical settings. Um, and uh, we hope that much more definitive laboratory or, or other behavioral indicators are going to come along to be even more specific and sensitive. Well, but, that's, that's fascinating. Do you see something? I mean, you're, you're right. I, I find that complicated uh, as a as a if as an emergency physician. I can and there's only so much screening we could do. You know, like are you suicidal? Right. Do you have domestic violence? You know, there, we right. we do a lot of screening. Right. Um, um, and. Um, so it kind of gets overwhelming to ask all these 11 criteria in a primary care setting, I think would be, is, is complicated. I don't think it's simple. And and you're right. It's very different than checking a blood pressure, hemoglobin right. A1C or your eye pressure, or even a pap smear. Those are very easy, simple stools. So tell me, you must have some ideas of how to make that easier. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I I think you've raised a very important general question. L let's suppose we had a definitive, and we don't. We don't have definitive measures of pre-addiction. But we, a real we have question. a kind of a, for alcohol, like yes, and and I AAA has done a really wonderful job of making a definition. Yes. And I could tell, you know, my my young children, like if well, if you have more than four drinks, you're an at-risk drinker. That's right. 
That's right. And there are suggestive measures for alcohol, CDT, ETG, GGT, um, MCV are all alone or in combination, excuse me, uh, alone or in combination. Um, It's not unreasonable to me to think that there might be um, a set of laboratory tests for alcohol that would do for alcoholism what um, uh, fasting glucose and glucose sensitivity tests are doing in in a diabetes field. But you raise another important point. Um, Let's suppose I had the test and I could definitively um, uh, identify and predict the course for for addiction. Is Is this something that can fit into contemporary primary care? The problem is everybody wants their illness to be identified early and treated effectively by primary care. And with no disrespect to my many friends in primary care, um, a 12-minute appointment, uh, extraordinary uh, time constraints, not very good education, especially about addiction in, in, in medical residency training. I'm, I'm questioning already whether the early interventions ought to be cited in primary care or they ought to be in a different venue. Well, like what? I don't know, but maybe um, school health, maybe employment health, maybe non-health settings. Um, but we're, we're, we're not even there yet, I have to admit. Um, I do think two to five criteria, meeting two to five criteria is not a bad starting point. And and one of the reasons I say that is because I think um, I recognize the the, the time constraints in in, uh, primary care and emergency medicine, but it's not terribly difficult to get those questions asked. So I don't think that's the big thing. Another issue is, do you have the moral right do you have the clinical authorization to start probing around on this condition called uh, pre-addiction? Um, you do in diabetes because pre-diabetes itself is a significant medical problem. You, you, if you could reduce um, the uh, the problems with sugar metabolism, there you would you have justification. But isn't it possible that Probing about for pre-addiction might be further stigmatizing. Might it not? I don't know. We do that for alcohol and tobacco. It's part of our routine yep. social history. Well, how many packs a day? You know, how many pack yep. history you have, and that's a risk factor for yep. you know tobacco and lung disease. And we do we we have it, but we don't do it enough for alcohol. Like, how much do you drink? How many drinks a week? And well, just so you know that you know. At right. your age, you know, and if you have medications you're taking, you're considered an at-risk drinker. That's, and that affects right. people. Just saying that, well, you're in, that means that you meet the definition of at-risk yeah. drinker. If I was able to say something and saying, well, you, you have pre-addiction, just so you know. And I think yeah. that, makes people, that makes people think. Right. Well, I saw what you did when you said the term. It, it jolted you. And, and that's exactly why we like the term. Mm-hmm. If um, people... One of the many criticisms of our article was the word addiction is stigmatized. 
we shouldn't even use that word. Um, uh, and we don't, don't we don't agree with that. Um, the word addict is stigmatized, just as diabetic, schizophrenic are all stigmatized. But addiction, everybody knows what it is, A, and B, they know they don't want to get it. And that's the point. When you say something that is a signal for something that might reasonably happen to you and that it's bad, we believe that's at least the 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 formula necessary part of the formula necessary to energize clinical people but also the patients themselves and when you say we you mean the the the, the three authors yeah, yeah. <laughs> these these two promising young investigators and i yeah I but, think and by that, the way i, yeah. I want to add one more thing you might say for, for god's sake what are you trying to do are you trying to reduce partying out there People drink sometimes, they drink too much, okay, maybe they smoke marijuana, but is there any reason to believe that any of that sub-diagnostic use um, is problematic? And the answer to that is, this is not an opinion. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, uh, Misuse, that is use of alcohol or any other drug at a level that is harmful to you or to those around you is associated with um, uh, rape and interpersonal violence among young people, um, uh, school dropout, uh, accidents and injuries, disabilities and deaths. And so we think the efforts to intervene at the pre-diagnostic level, pre-addiction, is has very sound public health justification right so i it makes it makes sense um usually people who have a substance use disorder wait till they hit rock bottom before seeking help and at that point the disease is harder to treat it'd be like waiting for you to have metastatic cancer Exactly. You know, that was resistant to treatment. And now we're going to try to do something. And and then, you know, then we were offering palliative care, which is more like harm reduction instead Absolutely. of intervening early. So is there science behind the concept for addiction like there is for cancer that if we treat it early, you're going to have better results? Uh, the answer is um, there's suggestive evidence. That's the best I could possibly say. Mm-hmm. And I, I remind you that most of the, quote, evidence, most of the interventions, most of the medications for pre-diabetes occurred after the concept was put into a, into public uh, view. Um, but I think there are potentially some important things that could be done and built upon. But clearly, much more research is, is needed. Screening and brief intervention. That's already reimbursed. It's been used. It's met nobody's um, idea of what it could reasonably do. Very difficult to do in primary care settings. But when implemented, it reduces drinking in in the target group and has been shown over and over to be effective. Um, Medications that have had modest effects in serious alcohol and opioid uh, using uh, uh, patients might have much more significant effect if used earlier. Mm-hmm. But yes, 
you be careful. There, there are side effects with every medication. So, so this all needs to be researched. But that's what we're calling for, is to begin to look a little bit earlier into the trajectory of substance use and try things uh, and develop new things. A, a, a whole genre of things is already out there are these um, internet and app-based applications that that are community support efforts to reduce things like bullying, anxiety, uh, uh, eating disorders, uh, uh, healthy uh, living. Noom and many other of these uh, organizations are making a living by identifying social behavioral problems early and giving um, practical advice and community support to behavioral change. Could these could these be brought to bear in the um, alcohol and other substance use area? I don't know, but I think it, the question is worth asking. Interesting. So I read the comment sections, you know, at the bottom of the article, that's, you know, you have your base oh, yeah. article and what everybody's saying on it. One, one of the comments came from a Dr. Weiss, and I'm going to paraphrase her, but she said, pre-diabetes started when the drug companies um, uh, were focused on reducing hemoglobin A1C. So there, there was a target, the hemoglobin A1C, and big pharma had an interest in educating people because it would increase their profit margin. And she argues that, well, substance use disorder doesn't have a specific drug or big pharma to intervene at that level. Um, so it may not be as easy. Do you think that that's true? Do we really need big pharma to make this happen? Well, I mean, I don't think so because we, again, I'm using tobacco and alcohol as an example. Yeah. Um, uh, factually, that simply isn't true in the case of diabetes. Um, you could, you, there were no approved indications for any of those drugs until diabetes had reached a certain level. It was the introduction of the concept, the research that followed it, and very importantly, the insurer's willingness to reimburse that did certainly, as she, as she points out, open the door for earlier use and develop of diff different kinds of medications that were more appropriate to early stage. Um, I know that naltrexone for alcohol. Uh, uh, addiction um, has significant, but I have to say modest effects for the very mostly severe. Also, it seems to work better for, for uh, alcohol dependent individuals with a very significant family genetic history for, um, for alcohol use disorder. Okay, but couldn't that same medication for the same group of people applied earlier have even more positive effects? I don't know the answer, but that's that's why they do research. Interesting. It, All right. Uh, so back to the essence of what her, her comment is. Mm -hmm. it, it, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know her. I'm sure she's a, a fine physician. But the thinking is backwards. And, and we got that when our paper was reviewed by lots of uh, very prominent uh, reviewers. They all, they all thought that the concept followed the development of the screening test or the medication or the intervention. That is just factually not true. 
all of that resulted from the concept followed by political and and um, insurance um, advocacy. And that's what resulted. The, the NIH got um, lots of money to develop and test new interventions once the public outcry um, led to it. I think it'd be a lot easier to screen if you honed it down, like maybe for a few questions, you know, like the cage questions or something like that for that would con that would be equivalent to your uh, mild to moderate uh, DSM-5. Because right now, I think it's 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 hard to do. Um, but if if you were able to simplify it, you know, three, no more than three questions. <laughs> so um, or even easier would be yeah. if it were self-administered on a computer or on a phone app uh, with the result given to the physician or the nurse, whatever. Um, yeah. Even easier would be a litmus test. Even uh, easier would be a urine test. Well, that may happen. But again, the essence of what uh, Drs. Volkoff and, and Kub and I are saying is that first you need the concept and first you got to want to. You got to want to intervene earlier yeah. and Research and development follows that. You know what? I bet you just gave me an idea. Um, there's a lot of employment uh, drug screens that occur. And yes. these are open book tests. And yeah. so one of the deans at a medical school in New York said that um, their medical residents who are you know, new to the job were failing their open book drug screens, and they would be telling them, okay, in three months, we're going to do this again on Tuesday, and they'd fail it again. I think yeah. uh, that's a pretty good screening um, for having at least yeah. mild to moderate uh, substance use disorder if you can't pass your open book drug test with three months in advance to study for the exam. Oh, uh, there's so many examples of that. I, I used to uh, consult for the National Football League. Multi hundred thousand dollar bonuses were contingent upon passing your drug test the day you sign up at the the, the combine, and as many as twenty five percent of these recruits were losing a hundred thousand dollars because they had marijuana in their urine, and you know, uh, some people call it a, 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 an open book test, some people call it an IQ test. But either way, uh, it's it's indicative that okay. somebody either doesn't know enough or can't control enough right. to not have a positive test. And the answer that um, this medical school did to solve their problem of, of doctors failing their drug screens is to get rid of the drug screen instead of... Yeah, of course. Perfect. Great. Right. And uh, and uh, that made me sad. How would you like your surgeon to have a incoming, <laughs> knowingly that they have yeah. such a such a problem instead of doing what you're doing, saying, "Okay, well, we're worried that you have pre addiction. Let's treat it." Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, interesting. You bring up um, physicians. One of the most um, compelling evaluations I ever did. Um, I did with Dr. Uh, Greg Skipper and, and Bob DuPont of uh, physicians who were addicted. There are programs of every state, I think, except perhaps one, has physician health plans for people whose colleagues identify them as potentially 
having an addiction problem. And the, the physician is offered, uh, first they're, they're asked to, to undergo screening, and if positive, uh, and screening is, is laboratory tests, but also uh, a, a, a rather significant interview with them and the families. Um, but where where it's positive, they could lose their license. But more more often, they sign up for a traditional treatment that is followed by four more years of monitoring and and a lot of support. Well. The I didn't believe it when we started, but uh, we evaluated a thousand people for seven years. Uh, that thousand physicians that were identified followed them with greater than eighty-five percent total success. Um, and you take any measure you want: employment, substance use, uh, harm to self or other, any, anything. Eighty-five percent yeah. success. And um, and you might say, well, of course, they're physicians. My God, they've got all kinds of uh, public support. They got a lot to lose, everything else. Well, physicians who went to the same programs and didn't and just got what, um, quote, normal people get 30 to 60 days of uh, residential care. They had 50 percent relapse rates within six months, just like everybody else. The reason I bring it up is. Suppose I talk back to diabetes. Suppose I told you, you know, there's really effective diabetes treatment. You can get 85% improvements rates. Oh, sorry. You have to be either an airline pilot or a physician to get it. The, you know, the American public wouldn't put up with that. Yeah. Um, there are effective ways of treating addiction. And I think there soon will be effective ways of preventing and intervening early. And, but first, the public's got to demand it. Yeah, interesting. So um, let's change gears a little bit. I want to ask you in, about drugs in general, because uh, you've written our nation's uh, drug control strategy under Obama and have seen it changed over the years. What's, uh, what's your perspective on that? Um. I am very sad at the state of political discourse and legislative action in the addiction field. Um, and I was upset about it in uh, the last administration, and I'm upset about it in this administration. And I don't understand it. I hear that addiction, drug use and alcohol use, is one of the few issues where the parties seem to agree. Um, I know from serving on the Surgeon General's um, report, I know from helping with the Christie Commission report, I know from reading the National Academy of Science that there are many practical, sensible, uh, uh, legislative things that could markedly change um, the attractiveness, the the uh, uh, implementation, and the effectiveness of addiction care in this country, um, and yet nothing's been done. Um, what what would I, I really you what would you like mean. to see? 
what would you like to see happened? That All right, I'll, I'll give you a short list. First, um, the waiver, <clears throat> there, there's a proposal now to drop the waiver for X physician, the X waiver, the X waiver to pre prescribe one of the medications that's useful in, in opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. I think that's stupid. The, the, with <clears throat> less than 30% of medical schools, Wait, you want to get, you're against removing the X-ray? I, I am. I'm against uh, dropping it. Oh, what, I, okay. what, I suggest I instead, <laughs> what I suggest instead is that this is an opportunity to provide some education to a prescriber workforce that hasn't had that education in their medical and, and nursing school training. So my suggestion would be as part of the DEA certification to prescribe opioids, you also get the waiver, the same eight hours of instruction on what you do if your prescribing of opioids turns into an addiction. I do not think that's too much to ask of budding physicians and nurse practitioners. I think, I well, think it would be effective. I live through that. And so, Tom, I... I hear what you're saying. You're coming from it from a good place. Let's educate people. Yeah. But having been the um, the re on the receiving end of government mandate education, I received you know like you know t eight twelve hours of mandated pain education. By the time you mandate it, it's already expired, outdated. I took that pain education um, and that made me prescribe more and, and hurt people. And then I took the eight hours of X waiver education. I came out of that with more questions than answers. And, and government mandated education is not the right way of teaching a medical community. We've, we've learned how to treat COVID on the fly and in a good way, in a systematic way. I've learned how to do dangerous things, right? You know, um, you know, central lines and, and ultrasound exam, really complicated right. things I've learned after my training. We have a good way of medical education, but government mandates on your license has, um, in my 30 plus years, of the receiving end has has proven to be bad with okay, unintended, so con unintended consequences. That's probably one we'll disagree on. Okay, Here, <laughs> here's another. You brought you brought up COVID. Um, at the start of COVID, there was there were no medications to treat COVID. There was no vaccine, right? But there was clear indication it was a medical problem. What did the government do? Uh, Republican administration then and followed by the demonstration of uh, the Democrats. Um, they uh, produced Operation Warp Speed. They incentivized business to rapidly discover and develop and broadly implement that what rapid, not rapidly enough, but very rapidly in terms of history, very rapidly developed of um, effective um, vaccines and got them out to the public. Yeah. Um, similar work was done with AIDS. Remember, AIDS was extremely yeah. um, stigmatized. Uh, you know, they wasn't sure what it was. I was lived in the era where physicians wouldn't touch, literally would not touch an AIDS patient. Very rapidly with advocacy from primarily gay and, and, and other affected people, Business, government work together to develop 
now now AIDS is 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 no longer a life threatening illness. It's a it's an uh, uh, yeah. a, um, no, I a chronic illness. Too. Yeah. yeah. Where is that for addiction? I agree with you. I agree with you with that. Absolutely agree with you. But 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 making you take but making you take some government mandated course is not going to that's that was never done with AIDS or COVID. I'm I'm off of that one. Well, we'll we'll, we'll agree to disagree with that. But um, but but here's another thing. Tremendous amount of money has been spent state opioid responses. Lots of dollars have gone into the opioid issue. But where did those dollars go? Oh, oh, and then the, the, the opioid settlement grants. Where did those dollars go? The great majority of those dollars have gone into the same antiquated treatment system that, that is, supports about 16,000 public addiction treatment programs. Now, God bless those treatment programs filled with well-intentioned, earnest people trying to help. They cannot, I, I, I don't say this with, with any pleasure at all, those programs cannot deliver comprehensive, effective care. They just don't have the resources. And, and they don't have this infrastructure. They're not part of the medical establishment. They are purposely segregated with their own sets of money. And the primary ingredient after 50 years is group counseling. Group counseling is not a bad thing. I have participated in it. I've seen people do well in it. It's not enough. A comprehensive, coordinated, continuing care program involving medications, professional therapies, support services is possible, but not in that antiquated infrastructure. That could be changed. One way to do it without putting all those programs out of business is create a tiered licensing system where those treatment programs are, let's call them tier one, and they get uh, uh, um, support for providing group counseling. A tier two program would get far better funding contingent on the capacity to deliver high quality comprehensive care and be uh, uh, associated with a a medical establishment, a a healthcare provider. So many of the addiction treatment programs have no contact at all with the rest of medicine. So their PTSD, their depression, their chronic pain, their diabetes, their hepatitis, are, are, it cannot be addressed in that context. Mm-hmm. There are plenty more of these. So well, call me very disappointed in um, government action. Yeah, I I agree with you. I see billions of dollars going at a problem and not fixing it. And that... I. Sometimes good money after bad, right? Like I, 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 don't see, I don't see that making a difference. It's like, oh yeah, I'm spending so much money, but what what results are you getting, right? Right. Okay, so we'll right. agree there. Yeah, we'll agree there. Sure. Um, there, are, what, there are plenty, and and by the way, there are good organizations that the uh, Legal Action Center, uh, Partnership for Drug Free Kids, uh, the uh, uh, group of. Uh, project from uh, Harvard School of Public Health, they've all listed 
government actions that are possible now that will not only not cost much, they will reduce uh, costs. And you're talking about primary prevention. No, I'm talking about to some extent prevention, but but also uh, existing treatment. In, in fact, the majority of it is uh, most of the, the uh, recommendations are for, for uh, treatment. Treatment's still being done in an antiquated way under an, a, an outdated view of what addiction is. If we treated, I don't know, diabetes the way it used to be thought of, we'd be in the same boat. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, you know, you, you mentioned our political divide and the divide in solution, that we have on solutions for addiction. What about the whole um, movement to commercialize drugs? And I think you alluded to that when you said, well, some people say, oh, you shouldn't call addiction. People don't have addiction. Well, no, that's something we try to prevent. That's not a bad thing. And, and I'm thinking that a group would, who wouldn't like to have it called addiction, well, it's like I can have a cocktail. I can also have a line of cocaine. Not everybody has a problem with that. And there's a huge movement to commercialize and normalize drug use, starting with um, all the marijuana products and psychedelics and, and more. What do you think of that? So I I have a, a a view. It's it's my own. I, I we, we'll see uh, what you think. Um, in my mind, <clears throat> it was a terrible idea to quote legalize uh, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. It was done at a time when um, we, we had a lot of unemployment in the country. We're coming off a terrible recession. And one of the major, there were two major driving forces. One was there had been a, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, incarcerated uh, uh, arrests and incarcerations of uh, particularly young African-American males who were whose major, uh, quote, crime was smoking marijuana. And that was thought to be a terrible waste of money, of, of incarceration and of stigmatization for the rest of their lives. But I certainly agree with that. And two, um, if we legalize marijuana, it will produce opportunity for local uh, companies to get in and uh, create. It'll create jobs and new uh, wealth. So I think those are, are, are reasonable uh, reasons to to legalize, but I think they took the wrong path. I think the right path would have been decriminalization, which is completely different. Decriminalization is when you reduce the penalties for uh, a, 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 a crime, a problem, uh, to more appropriately suit the nature of the of the crime, like. Uh, they don't put people in jail for parking tickets or speeding tickets. They give them tickets. Um, that's the right, as far as I'm concerned, that's what should have happened with marijuana. When you legalize, you're sanctioning. You're saying, oh, it's okay to smoke. Uh, it's okay to uh, use this, uh, use it responsibly, all that. And I don't think that's true. I think. Um, the the health 
uh, problems. Uh, people people always say the the marijuana is just about as as harmful as alcohol, and I agree with that. Well, alcohol is very harmful, uh, harmful use, all that when used responsibly. Of course, it's not, but. There are problems associated with that, and there and there have been clear problems associated with the increasing use of marijuana. The literature is, is replete with it. Uh, you know, it, it, at a time when American educational systems are going, we're falling behind India and China, and our kids don't graduate from high school. They don't know how to do math. They can't read. Oh, I know, marijuana. Marijuana legalization would be a good idea. I, I'm not buying it. So I I um I agree with you. What the way they won the war is by mixing the issues of criminalization and legalization, getting people mixed up with that. And to this day, people don't know how to separate those two. Um, and that's kind of why that's happened. I live in California, so I just gotta live with the facts. So I can't be against yeah. legalization. That's what people voted for. I don't think they voted for the consequences because what's happened is since, you know, Prop 64 passed, you're not buying marijuana now. You're buying meth. <laughs> you know, 98% THC is more like meth. Um, and uh, every day as an emergency physician, I see marijuana poisonings and the health consequences have gone unregulated. And so I see that's the biggest problem is the commercialization of it um, and, uh, and lack of regulation, lack of protecting our children, our babies. The number one poisoning in little kids under five is marijuana. And, um, and, I didn't and, know that. Yeah. Number, go to any emergency department around the country, ba little babies, um, number one. And, um, and, and I think if you look at big studies where we have a mental health crisis, it's not all because of marijuana, but it's a risk factor. Just like tobacco yes, is a is. risk factor for heart disease. Marijuana is a risk factor for schizophrenia. So not everybody who uses marijuana is going to get schizophrenia. But do you want that? That's kind of like the pre-addiction, right? That's right. Um, model see, of prevention. I, I see it as a math problem. You know, right. every, exactly. I don't care what commodity you're, you're talking about, Hershey bars, iPhones, whatever, um, efforts to make that commodity easier to get, cheaper, uh, more accessible, you're going to have more users of that commodity. But in the case of, of substances with an addictive, addictive potential, about 25 or 30% are going to develop a problem, some kind of a problem, uh, an automobile accident, uh, problems at school or concentration. And about 10% are going to develop full-blown addiction. These are approximate numbers, but they're not way off. So efforts to increase the use are going to have predictable, mathematically predictable results at the, the, the severe end. And it's not right. all addiction. It's, right. it's misuse as well as addiction. Right. Right. Very sadly. And I talk to mothers whose children have addiction or committed suicide from cannabis-induced psychosis, right. and they had right. no idea. So they're, what, the, way, the reason marijuana is different than 
alcohol or opioids or cocaine or psychedelics. It's people who use those other drugs. People, if you're using methamphetamine, you kind of know it's not good for you. You shouldn't be doing it, but you have a, a problem. People use marijuana think, oh no, I use it as much as I can. It's good for me. And they think yeah. it's helping them and and they're being tricked. It, and it makes me relax while I'm driving is what I hear all the time. Yeah. That's, that That's sends scary. shivers down my right. spine. Yeah. Right. That's very scary. And they have, and we've done simulation trusts under the, behind the wheel. People are impaired, but they don't know they're impaired. They're they not aware. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, well, so that's, that's why I think that marijuana is a little different. What about this whole harm reduction? This is the first year that the national drug control policy included harm reduction. People define it the way they want to define it. What are you, what are your perspectives? Yeah. Well, once again, you're pressing one of my special little buttons. Oh, I, I think I'm getting good at that. First, yeah. First of all, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 who is for harm production? Do you, do you know anybody who is arguing for harm production? I don't. You pinpointed something that's problematic for me. Everything uh, in, in some of these formulations, um, uh, methadone, buprenorphine, these are harm reduction strategies. Uh, maybe, but I, I call them medications. That's That's what I would call them. In my mind, I'm for any initiative, effort, uh, intervention that reduces the likelihood of, of problems, okay? Um, but I'm not for anything that increases the likelihood, frequency, duration, intensity of substance use, because substance use is problematic. So. Um, early intervention, screening brief inter intervention, medications, all that I'm for. Uh, supervised addiction, uh, supervised injection sites. Um, you know, no, sorry, I'm I'm off the train there. I just I, I've seen all the research. Um, it's it may not be very effective, but at least it's expensive extraordinarily expensive to implement. Right. And, and I think I that people don't understand the addiction. My own colleagues, my own addiction yeah. specialist colleagues in emergency medicine, I think I was the only one in the room to explain the difference between needle exchange, which is evidence-based, you know, preventing yeah. hepatitis and HIV yeah. versus safe injection sites where there are, that's bricks and mortars and somebody watching you overdose and giving you naloxone. It's a very different concept that, just like you said, costs a lot of money. And here I am sitting in the emergency department where I have patients who are crying, begging me to send them someplace for their addiction, and I have no place to send them to. Right. So how are yes. we investing in people who are using? You could use anywhere you want, but there's not enough places for people to get help when they want help. I have no place to send them. So where are our priorities? I'm sorry, but you're not going to get an, uh, any argument from me on that one. That oh, is... That's a, I think that's a clear one for me. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of use the opioid prescription um, model of what happened. You were said that you were on the, the, the Christie Commission. I think we 
tackle that problem. We no longer have an opioid prescription epidemic that that we did. And, and that's what got me into this field when I, as a physician, was harming the public when, you know, I made a, a vow for my career to do the exact opposite. And that got me engaged. And I think we tackle that problem on the supply side, right? We don't, we're no longer over-prescribing. We, we may not be perfect, but but we're not over-prescribing like we used to do. And we didn't, there were patients who would come into the emergency department, they would be on a bucket of medications. And I'm like, ah, what am I going to do with this? I need to just, I just need to keep you alive somehow. I'm not going to take away your bucket. I'm going to just keep you alive somehow. And, right. and But I'm going to end the problem by the, preventing the next generation of Americans who won't be addicted to opioid prescriptions anymore. And we did it. We did it in a fairly short period of time, you know, 20 years, getting into the problem, getting out of the problem. Um, so I, I am a big believer on and primary prevention and reducing supply as a good, you know, if you had, you know, it's all important, like you mentioned, but if I wanted to really make a big ding in things and, and save a generation, that's where I would put some emphasis. I don't know if we're doing enough of that. I I, um, I think the trajectory of opioid prescribing, I, I know it's a fact, the trajectory of opioid pro, uh, prescribing has changed, and I agree with you there. I wouldn't exactly proclaim victory at this point. 100 million people got an opioid prescription um, uh, last year alone. Um, and uh, I don't agree that we've developed the right procedures for getting people off or transitioning them off. Uh, but you're completely right that there's been big, big progress. And, and to me, what that suggests, I, I mean, my, my whole theme of, of my uh, last years of my career has been that a, a, a substance misuse and addiction has to become much more firmly part of the rest of healthcare and medicine. Because when medicine decides to change, they do a damn good job and they do it pretty quickly. Uh, AIDS, COVID, uh, opioid prescribing, lots of others. And But this has been purposely segregated from the rest of, of uh, medicine. And I, I think that's been a terrible mistake. I agree with you. Your privacy shouldn't kill you, right? We should be yeah. <laughs> we should be working together. Right. That's great. Right. So, Dr. Right. McClellan, hopes for twenty twenty three. Yeah, um, I hope that there will be um, more broad recognition that the old ways are not the best ways. I'm so interested in the expenditures of the state opioid response dollars and the um, opioid settlement dollars. I don't want to see them go to the same old tired, earnest, well-intentioned, but simply not effective solutions. That's hope number one. Two, I'd like to see 50% of U.S. medical and nursing schools have a at least a one semester course in uh, addiction. I think it's warranted. The events of the last several years and every minute of every day warranted. Uh, and I think it's it's possible. Um, I'd like to see the Office of National Drug Control in the next administration, whoever it is, I'd like to see it be a cabinet position, not a an office that nobody knows what they do. 
Um, um, I, I would like to see something we haven't talked about, which is um, community-based prevention. Um, I am a treatment guy. I'm not a prevention guy, but I've read the prevention literature, and it's compelling to me. When it's delivered generically and consistently and continuously throughout the at-risk years, that is uh, basically age 12 to age 25, prevention is so effective. It's reduced problems of all types by as much as 30, 40%. <clears throat> the re prevention researchers at the University of Washington have shown this over and over and over. Uh, uh, Penn State University has shown it over and over, but it's never implemented. There's, you know, there's a sign on the road that says, turn here for your hospital. Ain't no sign for here's your prevention. That could happen and it could uh, it could dramatically improve not just addiction, mental health, bullying, early pregnancy, uh, 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 all those these things. They all have the same predictive factors and they they just you know, they, they, there's a there's a period in the eighth grade when somebody says, well, oh, we're going to do the 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 drugs are bad talk now and um it's it's ineffective okay so those are those are my hopes for the well, for, those uh, are great hopes those are great hopes okay and uh and and may like 50 percent of them <laughs> yeah. come true in the next sure. week so um dr tom mcclellan thank you so much it's really an honor to chat with you and to share your perspectives with this high truth audience and uh i'm definitely on board Early intervention and prevention beats waiting for full-blown disease when people hit rock bottom. And I wish you a happy and healthy new year. And back to you as well. And uh, thanks so much for having me. I hope some of this has been helpful and useful. And with that, I want to say thank you to Ray Hampstead, who asked a great question about uh, pre-addiction as a concept. She is interested and uh, especially in doing drug policy. It's a pleasure, Ray, to work with you with the Center Community Research. We do such good work with a lot of passion on behalf of the people for San Diego and on the whole issue of addiction. So I really thank you for that. And uh, thank you, um, Dr. Tom McClellan. It's really an honor to chat with you, hear your perspectives, share them with our High Truth audience. And I'm definitely on board that early intervention and prevention beats waiting for full-blown disease and tragedy. And I wish you a very happy and healthy new year. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.